Hi guys, as Sam said, my name is Peter. I will be uh, reading the passage tonight. Tonight we are looking at Matthew chapter 3, verses uh, 13 to chapter 4, verse 11. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, with, whom I am well, with him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Let's pray, hey? Heavenly Father, thank you that we can meet around uh, your word and encourage one another in song this evening. Please help us to see Jesus with greater clarity and depth and uh, to embrace the help that he offers when we are tempted to sin. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if uh, you have any perks of your job, um, but uh, I used to work at a camp place down in Nara. And uh, if I was a good little boy and I did all my jobs and if, you know, there was too much food ordered and the, camp, the group had left, then I got to take home some free food. And I was studying at the time, so that was really, really excellent and wonderful. Uh, I didn't establish that. Trailblazers had gone ahead of me setting up that wonderful little uh, precedent. The uh, passage we're looking at in Matthew tonight, sorry about the pert sounds, I'll try and limit that. Uh, the passage in Matthew we're looking at comes on the back of uh, John's preaching out in the wilderness that people ought to be uh, baptised and repent. And uh, so far in Matthew's Gospel, uh, in chapters 1 and 2 as well, there's uh, lots of Old Testament references. Um, they're going to continue tonight. And uh, these are pointing to Jesus having a special place, a particular place in the life and history of Israel, um, fulfilling prophecy from many, 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 many years 
uh, ahead of his time. And uh, back in chapter 2 of Matthew, in chapter 2, verse 15, uh, there's Matthew starts a bit of a comparison. So I'll read chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. So he got up, that's Joseph, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now uh, this reference uh, of the son here is from Hosea chapter 11, uh, used of Israel. And so Matthew is kind of setting up back in chapter 2 and continuing tonight uh, a little bit of a comparison between Jesus and Israel and also uh, we're going to see that dramatically developed uh, as we look a bit closer at um, these events in Jesus' life. But uh, Jesus coming out of Egypt matches Israel coming out of Egypt. Jesus being baptised here, chapter 3, matches Israel going through the water, the Red Sea as they leave Egypt, the Jordan as they cross into the Promised Land. So we're going to see uh, this Son of God theme uh, expanded for Jesus in a couple of ways and then have a look at where one of the writers to the Hebrews the writer to the Hebrews takes that. So the first point we're looking at in verses uh, 13 to 17 of chapter 3 is uh, behold the Son of God. So John's there in the Jordan River and Jesus arrives and says, John, you need to baptise me. And John smells something fishy and recognises that their role should be reversed, that Jesus should be the one doing the baptising. But... John baptises Jesus. And in verse 15, Jesus says, it's proper for us to do this, to fulfil all righteousness. Uh, it's a bit tricky to understand what Jesus means here. Uh, but it seems like that Jesus is identifying with people, normal people, flesh and blood people, humanity. He's doing what righteous Israelites have just been doing, hearing the good news of John, repenting, Jesus skipped that step, and being baptised. And it's about identifying with people. And as soon as Jesus was baptised in verse 16, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. God declares to all those there for, that Jesus is his Son. The Spirit alights on Jesus. And God also says that he loves this Son and is pleased with him. There's a couple of Old Testament passages that are kind of, you know, that would be kind of ringing in the ears of Matthew's readers. The first is Psalm 2. It's a psalm attributed to David and so written about a thousand years before Jesus. And uh, in that psalm, the rulers of the world are uh, rebelling against God and his uh, rule and they want to establish themselves as their own authority. 
Uh, and at that, God laughs, laughs, and appoints his chosen king, his son, to rule. And so with this sonship language, there's also hints here, beginning of rule as well. So it's pretty big. It's pretty big when God says of this guy, dripping wet, coming up out of the river, that he is his son. Another reference is Isaiah 42, and that was written about in the 700s BC. Uh, and in Isaiah 42, there is a chosen one in whom God delights, who receives the Spirit of God, the servant. And Jesus is not some Johnny-come-lately, pops-out-of-the-ground rogue operator declaring himself to be important. God is identifying him as the one, the servant. The Spirit attests to that as well. So for Matthew's readers, this, this is a neon sign, giant arrows, fanfare, trumpets, the whole works. This is like pointing right at Jesus saying, this is, this is the guy. This is the guy. There are lots of ways that we announce things these days, isn't there? Gender reveals are uh, remarkably colourful and varied. Um, friends of ours in the States a few years ago uh, um, filled some balloons and then in typical American style used some guns to like blast the colours into the atmosphere and declare to everyone the gender of their child. Um, not really our speed in Australia. Uh, you've seen it as well, I'm sure, the, at the, the big sporting match. The camera zooms in on the supposedly happy couple and then the words flash up on the screen, will you marry me? It's, it's big. It's a big way to make an announcement like that. It's not how I did it. Um, yeah, for lots of good reasons, I think. <laughs> yeah. This is the big moment in Jesus' life. If you're new to church or the Bible, I've thrown a whole lot of passages at you from other bits of the Bible. Uh, but I hope you can see, however, that in this part of Matthew here, that this is a big moment and Jesus is really someone worth taking note of. Uh, so I'd encourage you to come back next week, see what Matthew has to say about Jesus, see what else we uh, hear of him. Uh, keep reading the Bible, keep investigating. Yeah. I don't know of anyone else in history that God's pointed at in such a public way who has fulfilled so much prophecy and said, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm all pleased. If you're a, a new Christian and you've been thinking about baptism, then I hope this passage spurs you on to follow in Jesus' footsteps and be baptised. It's not like when Jesus tells his disciples to be baptised, it's not like he's asking them to do anything that he hasn't already done. And if you've been around church for a while, then you've probably, in those dark, hard moments, had some secret, secret thoughts about giving up, finding something else, because it's just too hard to follow Jesus. Please don't. You won't find anyone better. You won't find anyone else who God approves of more than Jesus. You won't find an announcement from God about anyone else. 
There's no one better. There just isn't. We move into the wilderness in chapter 4, and we see that Jesus is faithful where others fail in the verses 1 to 11. Remember the comparison between Jesus and Israel coming out of Egypt out of, through the water? We can add to that here, tempted in the wilderness. Jesus enters the wilderness led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil for 40, uh, and he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. The 40 matches the 40 years that Israel spent in the desert. And so Matthew's readers are starting to wonder about the kind of son this guy's going to be. He's just been declared to be the son. He's going off into the wilderness. Is he going to follow in the footsteps of Israel? And if, you've, if you know anything of the first five books of the Bible, you know that uh, Jesus, uh, sorry, Israel and weren't that great at following God, really. Just not, there wasn't. They were not good. So is Jesus going to follow in their footsteps or is he going to forge a different path? Is it even possible not to sin when tempted? Is that even possible? Now, uh, the tempter in verse 3 is no dummy. The first thing he tempts Jesus with after he's been 40, fasting 40 days and 40 nights is food. Kind of makes sense. And Jesus replies, oh, firstly, the tempter says to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. The, the, the tempter is directly challenging this son of God relationship that Jesus has with the father and saying that if he has this special relationship like uh, God says he does, then this will be easy peasy, turning stones to bread. But Jesus replies in verse 4, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus' reply here and uh, the next two come all come from Deuteronomy. This one here from Deuteronomy 8. Uh, and in Deuteronomy, Moses is speaking to Israel on the very cusp of entering the promised land uh, preaching to them, teaching them how they ought to be, uh, how they ought to live as God's people. And again, if you know your first five books of the Bible, you'll know that Israel, following God's word and trusting that what God says is true, is not really their style. Sadly, they were doubters. They didn't. Consider God trustworthy at lots of points. But when faced with food, uh, you know, after fasting for so many days, Jesus says that every word that comes from the mouth of God is life-giving for people. I wonder if you consider consuming and digesting the word of God absolutely essential and life-giving to your daily life. Undeterred, in verse 5, the devil takes 
Jesus to uh, the holy city and has him stand on the highest point of the temple in verse 5. If you are the son of God, he challenges, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Satan here uses the Bible, uses the Bible to tempt Jesus. It's pretty bold. And challenges this trust that Jesus says he has in God's word. Jesus replies with words from Deuteronomy 6, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Were Jesus to throw himself off the roof, trusting in uh, that God would take care of him, he would have been testing God. He would have been acting and demanding God take one particular course of action that he decides. And that would be, you know, kind of a litmus test of whether God was actually good or cared for him at all. Israel did this when they were standing at Massah and Meribah in Numbers 20, complaining about the lack of water and how God hasn't cared for them the way they think they ought to be cared for, having left Egypt following God. When have been the times when you've quietly said to yourself, well, if God doesn't do this, he doesn't care for me anymore. That's kind of testing God, isn't it? Determining what's God, what God's actions should be. In verse 8, the devil takes Jesus to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor and says to Jesus, all this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It's kind of like, well, it kind of sounds desperate, doesn't it? I'll give you everything. I'll give you whatever you want. Just, just do it. I'll give you anything. Sounds like a parent a little bit. At, the, at moments, at the lowest moments of being a parent. It's like... It's like Satan is offering Jesus an alternate path to glory and authority. Skip a life of suffering. Skip the temptation. Skip the cross. I can give it to you all now. You're going to get it anyway. But this lies. It's lies. Jesus determines to worship God and him only. And... In verse 11, he is attended to by angels, like Psalm 91 says. Despite physical weakness, I, you know, I can't go four hours without getting grumpy and um, saying something I ought not to have said. Uh, Jesus here, 40 days and nights fasting and still resists temptation from the devil. Jesus' relationship with the Father is different from those before him. He's not like Israel. He hasn't failed in these trials. 
It's one of determined faithfulness to God. But how? It just doesn't seem possible. Certainly very different from the way I've dealt with temptation in the past. I remember being at uni once and having an assignment due, but also at the same time being, you know, three quarters of the way through a season of the West Wing. Man, that's good television, the West Wing. And I thought, you know, man, there's only a few episodes that go. I'll just watch it. And then, you know, it won't have any more hold on me. I'll just give in, I'll watch it, and then I can focus on my assignment. Well, you know, I watched the end of that season and then, of course, it ended on a cliffhanger, so I watched a few episodes of the next season. Uh, I can remember the season. I can't remember the assignment. I don't know what it is. I don't know how well I did or poorly, probably. And I imagine we've got similar stories of just giving in to temptation. How did Jesus do it? Well, he responds to the devil's lies with the word of God, with truth. However, if we only draw from this passage instruction on how to combat the lies of the devil, how to uh, avoid testing God, worshipping God alone, we wouldn't be wrong. But I think... There's more. There's more that uh, we can see. If you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably heard the phrase, Jesus is fully God and fully man. It's a doctrine uh, describing the dual nature of Jesus, man and divine, uh, not lacking in either. And... It's a doctrine that the early church worked hard to protect from heresy um, and it's well supported by scripture. And so you may be tempted to think that uh, the reason Jesus is sinless here and resists temptation because he is God, which is true. The godness of God is no less present in Jesus because he's human. It's no less present than when he was at the Father's side in eternity past. Jesus is God and he hasn't lost anything of that by being tempted in the wilderness here. But so far in Matthew's book, he hasn't talked a whole lot about the divinity of Jesus. It wouldn't be really reading his book very well to say that Jesus' obedience here, according to Matthew, is because of his divinity. Jesus being called the Son of God is not, being, is not the same as God the Son. And it's to kind of reduce Jesus' humanity a bit. It's, it's almost like we're suggesting that when times get tough, he pops on his God hat and sails through, and then when good times roll, pops the humanity hat back on and um, gets on with it. But that's not the case. I think the best way to see uh, what Matthew's presented here is a human Jesus completely trusting in his Father's will, enduring the full force of temptation. Unlike us who give in, Jesus didn't endure all the tricks and the lies and the temptations and did not sin. The late Australian theologian Leon Morris in his book The Lord from Heaven describes it like this, to think of Jesus as going serenely on life's way with never a ripple of real temptation to disturb his calm progress is to empty his moral life of real worth. 
It reduces him to the level of a marionette and prevents us from seeing in him our example. His sinlessness did not result from some automatic necessity of his nature, but from his moment-by-moment committal of himself to the Father. He overcame, but it was a real victory over real temptation. This is Jesus, the new Son of God, the Son of God. And the book of Hebrews draws on this idea of Jesus as the Son of God and what it means for us to have a connection with someone like him. And it means that he can fulfill the role of the great high priest. In the Old Testament, the high priest would sacrifice for the sins of the people week by week and so on. And then once a year on behalf of the whole nation. But he couldn't do anything to help the people when they sinned. If they said to him, oh, look, I'm so tempted to sin, that the priest in the Old Testament couldn't help them. He was powerless. He could go, yep, he could say, yeah, it's tough, but that's kind of it. Let's have a look at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. And there the writer to the Hebrews writes this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This Jesus who resisted temptation to sin in Matthew chapter 4 was baptised in Matthew chapter 3, provided himself as a sacrifice for sin on behalf of sinners and was raised to new life because of his righteousness. This Jesus is now at the right hand of the throne of God, performing the role of high priest interceding between us and God in a position to sympathise and provide help. I don't think that Matthew chapter 4 lists a, an exhaustive account of all the different ways that Jesus was tempted. There are more later in Matthew's book and I'm sure many, many more that aren't recorded for us. But nevertheless, he was tempted in every way, yet did not sin. And so he would know the right kind of help, wouldn't he? He would know exactly what we need at the moment that we're tempted. Every kind of temptation we can face, Jesus has faced it and has overcome and so can help us, can really help us. When we feel tempted to sin, it might be that, you know, that misdirected love of that particular app and you just can't get enough of it and it consumes your thoughts day and night. Or maybe they, the ungodly worship of that particular website or that person. Maybe it's that repeatedly angry response that you can't seem to shake. Or the bitter hatred that you have in your heart towards that person. The white lies that are always right there, ready at a moment's notice. Or maybe it's the words of truth you withhold out of fear. Maybe it's the desire for 
a relationship and it just hasn't worked out the way you wanted and you think that God doesn't care for you. Maybe it's the chronic sickness that just doesn't seem to go away. In these moments when we're tempted to test God, to love things other than him, to worship things other than him, things that we consider life-giving, in these moments where I'm sure we've failed in the past, we could be too embarrassed to ask help from God. But do you consider your past failures to determine whether you'll ask Jesus for help when you're tempted to sin? Or do you consider the Jesus who overcame temptation in all of its forms and who can give you just the right help when you need it? Do you consider that Jesus is above temptation and just, you know, sails along and is kind of uncaring of us struggling humans? Or do you see Jesus as your great high priest, able to sympathise with us in our weakness because he was tempted in every way? Do you think over your past life and think that it's just too messy and that God wouldn't want you? Or do you see this Christ, this Jesus here, able to empathise with weakness and able to intercede for us at God's throne of grace, unmerited kindness? And so... Call out to God and ask for help in our time of need. This Jesus here in Matthew chapter 3 and 4 is righteous. He identifies himself with Israel and with righteous Israelites. He identifies himself with humanity and as a man is tempted and overcomes, committing himself to the Father and doing the Father's will utterly and believing what God says in his word. Let's follow in his footsteps, eh? Let me pray. Almighty God, we thank you that no longer humanity is defined by its frailty, but in Jesus there is newness of life, that we are made new creations in his image and are able to look to help, look to him for help, when we are tempted to sin. Lord, help us to do that, to embrace Christ, the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, our great high priest. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.